Uh, last week, we kicked off this series uh, that we're calling The Way We Found It, and what a kickoff to the series it was. Between London, between Somerset, and Williamsburg, 24 people followed Jesus in baptism last weekend. Yeah, that's a big deal. I mean, it was an incredible, incredible place to be. Everywhere where the Creek Church is was an incredible place to be last weekend. And before we jump into week two, uh, this is the last opportunity that I have to remind you, so I'm gonna take it. Next Sunday morning is what we're having, uh, what we're calling the Give Us Kentucky offering. Uh, if you're not up to speed, uh, the church has got a million dollar matching gift. And so every dollar you give and I give and we give next week, it gets doubled. Uh, so I wanna encourage you to to be praying about what you're gonna give next week and also to let you know that uh, we're gonna bring those gifts forward next week. We're, we're gonna lay them down uh, along the front of our altars and we're gonna extend our generosity towards God and believing that he's gonna use it in a big way. So I want you to be prepared for that. Uh, and then on that night, we're having a night of worship at all of our campuses and that's gonna get started at six o'clock. And Williamsburg and Somerset, this, this, this part is not for you, but everybody in London, we want you to RSVP for the night of worship because we wanna make sure that we have a for everybody who wants and needs and is planning on being here. Uh, we don't want to have a bunch of people show up and we can't get them in the room. So you can do that. And I would suggest you start today around one o'clock, not during my sermon. Okay. Uh, one o'clock, you can start RSVPing. Okay. If that's clear, say that's clear. Okay. Now last week, uh, we talked about that the world as we know it today, uh, the world that we know here in the 21st century, here in America, here in the West, um, that once upon a time, the world as we know it today, with all of its seemingly self-evident ideals, with all of the collectively beneficial values that are part of our culture, and, and all of the inspiring principles that lead to progress, uh, that's present here in the West and present in this country and has been present in this country since its inception, just about. That once upon a time, those principles, those values, and those self-evident truths they did not exist. Uh, once upon a time, the values that are clear to you, that are important to you, that are obvious to you, that are self-evident to you, uh, once upon a time, those values uh, did not exist. They were not self-evident to anyone. And, and that's a really important thing to remember. Ideals such as the value and the dignity of all people, not just some people, but all people, uh, the notion of justice for all and equality of all, uh, those things once upon a time were unheard of. Virtues like compassion or mercy or charity or generosity. Uh, once upon a time, those were not virtues, those were vices. And I know I said it last week, but I really do think that it bears repeating for everybody that was here and especially if you weren't here. Once upon a time, the world was such that the normalcy and the acceptance of slavery was self-evident to people. Once upon a time that women and children were mere property, that was what was self-evident. Uh, once upon a time, the sick, the mentally impaired, the physically disabled or handicapped, uh, they were useless and disposable. That was what was self-evident. Those ideas, those, those types of values to us in our day, it, those things sound repulsive. We can't imagine seeing the sick as disposable or someone who's impaired in some way as disposable. We can't imagine looking at a daughter or a wife as property. 
We, we can't imagine thinking that we have ownership of another human. We just can't even imagine. That's repulsive to us. That's reprehensible to us. That's history though. Once upon a time, those things were normal. Those things were self-evident. Those things were accepted. And so the question is, what changed? What happened? Why do we live in a world and I want you to get this. Why do we live in a world where there are values like human rights? There was no such thing as human rights throughout most of history. There was no such thing as women's rights. There was no such thing as the protection of children. But yet we live in a world where people, they value human rights, women's rights, the protection of children. We, we value things like humanitarian aid or, or healthcare for people who are sick that we believe that people who are sick should have access to a doctor or treatment or medicine. We live in a world where we believe in compassion for the marginalized or that people should have access to education, no matter who you are, or where you live, that, that there is a commitment to justice for all people, white people, black people, brown people, all people, rich people, poor people, that we believe that everybody should have justice. We believe in the world that we live in that everybody is born equal despite their creed or their color of skin or the socioeconomic class that they were born into or the tribe or the country or the nationality uh, from which they come. That's the world that we live in. And, and so the question that we should you know, be asking is not necessarily what changed because something changed. Ethics changed, values changed, perspective changed. There was a fundamental shift in the framework for how people saw the world. So obviously something changed. It's not what happened, but the better question that we should all ask is this, who happened? And when you look at history, it's obvious. Whether you believe or you don't believe, the answer is obvious, it's Jesus. History could not be more clear, not Christian history, just history. History could not be more clear that when Jesus showed up on the pages of history, everything about everything began to change. And the things that we value here in the West, the, val the things that are self-evident to us here in America and in the West, it, it, it was not because of some evolutionary march of history towards progress. It's not that at all, but the things that we value, the things that we hold important to us, the things that we see as the underpinnings of society and culture and government, those things were part of an incremental application of Jesus's teaching. That's what it was. The incremental application of what Jesus taught that was applied to individuals, then to families, communities, nations, and even ultimately to governments. Uh, documents like the Magna Carta, or British common law, or democratic ideas of government. All of those things grew out of the seed and the soil of Christianity. Everything that is self-evident to us, once upon a time was not self-evident, but it is self-evident today because of Christianity. Think about this. When Jesus showed up for the first time in history, women and children became people. Think of that. Women and children for the first time in history became people. Enemies were now seen as individuals made in the image of God. Nobody was to be seen as property of anybody else. When Jesus showed up, truth, the idea of truth became the idea of greatest freedom. That where there is truth, there is freedom. Love became the greatest law. And what began with Jesus has continued for 2,000 years through those who follow him. 
this is where we left off and this is where we pick it up. This is what Jesus said to his followers in the first generation. And this is what Jesus says to all of his followers in this generation. All authority, he says, in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And the reason that you see the world the way you see it, and the reason that you think the way that you think, and the reason that what is self-evident to you is self-evident to you is because Jesus spoke those words outside of Jerusalem 2000 years ago. And Jesus followers, a group of Jesus followers have been taking those words serious ever since. And so Jesus looked at his followers and said, okay, here's your mission, go change the world. This wasn't a platitude, this was purpose. He says, you're light, you're to push back the darkness. You're salt, you're to hold off decay. You are heralds of good news in your generation. You are the stewards of faith in your generation. So go change the world. And 11 of them left that day and they went to Jerusalem and 120 of them gathered in an upper room. And when they emerged a few days later on the day of Pentecost, they emerged as the church and everything changed because once upon a time, a group of Christians refused to leave the world the way they found it. They became known as the people who were turning the world upside down. So how did they do it? What was their edge? What did they have working in their favor? Because they were just like us, men and women and fathers and husbands and wives and workers and business owners. And they were people just like us. What allowed them, what helped them to change the world against all odds? Well, last week we talked about urgency. What was most important felt most urgent to them. They aligned their passion and their purpose and they lived it out with urgency and things began to change. But today I wanna to talk about something else, something else that I think helped them and might help us to change the world. And it's this idea right here, determination. Everybody say determination. Determination. I mean, everybody knows what determination is. It's an unwavering, unfaltering, unflinching, unhesitating pursuit of purpose. Whatever the purpose is, that's what determination is in its broad sense. It's unwavering, unfaltering, unflinching, unhesitating. It's a pursuit of purpose. It's a, it's a whatever it takes mentality. Man, she's determined, he's determined. They're willing to do whatever it takes. Uh, determination is when you make a definite decision. You decide and you decide once and for all, this is where I'm going, this is what I'm doing and I'm not looking back, I'm not second guessing. Determination is when you adopt a fixed intention. This is my intent. This is my motivation. This is my reason. This is my why. And it's when you have resolved action to pursue it. Uh, determination is the ability to get going. It's also the ability to keep going. It's hanging tough. It's holding fast. It's staying the course. Uh, determination is when you get knocked down, you get up again, right? That'd make a good song. I get knocked down. Okay, but anyway, so, but I get up again. That, that went bad really fast. All right. It's when you get knocked down, but you get up again. It, it's when you have a setback. It, it, it wasn't as easy as what you thought it was gonna be. There were some unexpected things happened that you didn't plan on. And yet you didn't turn back. There was a setback, but you didn't turn back. There was setback after setback after setback, but you refused to turn back because you were in a passionate pursuit of purpose. You had determined with unwavering, unflinching, unhesitating resolve to go after the purpose, your why, your reason for existing. It's, it's being strong-willed and single-minded. It's hanging in and holding on no matter what. That, that's determination. And we've all seen it in people. 
We've seen it in athletes and we've seen it in professionals and we've seen it in parents and we've seen it in children and students. We know determination when we see it. And it's attractive, it's compelling, it's powerful. And when you leverage determination for the highest good, and when we leverage determination for what's most important, amazing things can happen. And that's what happened with the first Christians. That's what happened with the first church. They had a sense of urgency, but not only did they have a sense of urgency, they had a sense of determination. And it was this determination that they possessed that I believe they learned it from Jesus. Jesus modeled what it meant and what it looked like to be determined. Listen to what Luke says about Jesus. He says, as the time approached for him to be taken up into heaven. In other words, as Jesus's time on earth was winding down, as Jesus was getting ready to be put to death, as Jesus was getting to that moment to fulfill his mission, the mission and the purpose that he had come into the world to fulfill and to accomplish. Luke says that as the time approached for him to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Or as the prophet Isaiah said of the Messiah, that he would set his face like flint and he would pursue the purpose for which God had sent him. The New American Standard Bible puts it this way. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined, Jesus was determined to go to Jerusalem. Now, lest we forget, we should think about what this means. Jesus knew what was happening in Jerusalem. Jesus knew what was awaiting in Jerusalem. He knew that there was a plot in place, put in place by powerful men to take his life. He knew the fate that was waiting for him in Jerusalem. And he knew that in Jerusalem, that it would not be without pain and it would not be without disappointment and it would not be without betrayal. It was gonna be anything but easy. It was going to be difficult. It was gonna be excruciating. It was going to be unjust. It was going to be unfair. He knew that it would cost him and just not cost him. It would cost him dearly. He knew that it would cost him his life, but yet he resolutely, with determination in his eyes and determination in his heart, he set his face towards Jerusalem. And when Jesus was arrested, he was not arrested south of Jericho, fleeing into the desert to hide in the caves that David hid in when he was fleeing from Saul in order to evade arrest. When Jesus was arrested, he was not arrested in Joppa or Caesarea Maritima, trying to get on a ship and flee the country. No, no, no. Your Savior, my Savior, our Savior, Jesus of Nazareth, he set his face like flint. He marched into Jerusalem in broad daylight and said, I'm here with unfaltering, unflinching, unhesitating pursuit of his purpose. He rode into Jerusalem in the light of day. And there he was facing the purpose, pursuing the purpose that God had placed on his life. He made a definite decision. He had a fixed intention. He had a settled purpose and he was determined to stay the course. And here's what you don't find Jesus doing. Luke says that he wasn't whining about how hard it was gonna be and the fact that it was getting harder every day to do what God had called him to do. He wasn't complaining, he wasn't moaning or bemoaning the fact that it was gonna be difficult. No. We find a savior. And for those of you men who you grew up with this kind of weak-spined version of Jesus, this weakling of Jesus, this Jesus who loved to tiptoe through the tulips, this, this Jesus that was anything but a man's man, 
Jesus ran towards what was hard. Jesus ran towards what was painful and uncomfortable because Jesus knew that what he was doing, it was working and it was going to work. It was working and it was gonna work and it was worth it. And in the end, it would absolutely be worth it. And that's what determination believes. Determination believes that what I'm doing, it's working. And what I'm doing, it's gonna be worth it. It's working and it's worth it. You'll never have determination about anything, about your health, about any discipline, or about the pursuit of purpose in your life, unless you believe that it's gonna work and it's gonna be worth it. And the first Christians, they saw this determination in Jesus. They saw it and they lived it out. So when they left there that day, they headed to Jerusalem to the upper room. And the first Christians, they entered the upper room with urgency, but they emerged from it with determination. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, one of, my favorite, one of my favorite things that he ever said was, he says, the world, the world seemingly moves out of the way of people who have a sense of knowing where they're going. That the world almost moves out of the way for a person or for a people who are moving in a particular direction with purpose. And that's kind of how it worked in history. That people reluctantly moved out of the way of the first Christians because they were pursuing their purpose with determination. They believed that what they were doing and going to do was working, that it would work, and that one day it would be worth it. So with determination, with a whatever it takes mentality, a whatever it costs mentality, wherever I have to go mentality, whenever I need to go there type of mentality, they lived life with determination and that determination, it cultivated an environment that facilitated the progress of Christianity. Because when you have determination and I have determination and when we have determination, it opens the door for all kinds of other good things, virtuous things, beneficial things that will help us move forward towards the purpose that God has called us to. For the first Christians, their determination opened the door for unity. They decided that they were gonna be a people of unity because the mission was too important to be in discord. The mission was too important to fuss and to fight. The mission was too important to be at odds. Their determination, they were so determined, they said, you know what, we're gonna do whatever it takes to be in this together. We're gonna do whatever it takes to be unified, to be one. And that's what Luke, that's what he says about the first church, Acts 4.32. He says, all the believers were what? Talk to me. They were what? One in heart and one in mind. Now, <laughs> they were not all just alike. It was not uniformity, but it was unity in the context of diversity. They understood that they could not be in conflict and on mission at the same time. The mission was too important for them to be at odds with each other, to be in discord. Their unity was their way of answering Jesus's prayer. When Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, I pray that my followers be one. Just as we are one, Father, I pray that they would be one. And that's only a prayer that they could answer. That's a prayer that only we can answer. It's the only prayer that Jesus prayed that we can answer. Father, I pray that they would be one. And their unity, it was uncommon, it was unheard of, and it didn't go unnoticed. 
This was a group of people, 120 of them, a few thousand of them at this point. This was a group of people who had all kinds of diversity, cognitive diversity. They, they didn't all think the same way. They, they, all, they all didn't see the same thing. They, they thought different, like us. I mean, you put us in a room and let us start talking about one particular thing, and you're going to find out that probably as many people in the room, we all see it a little bit different. So there was cognitive diversity. There was, there was experiential diversity. They all had different stories. They'd come from different places and different types of parents and different types of home and different class of people, different levels of education. They had theological diversity. Not every one of them believed all the same things. That's just, that's not even reasonable to think. So they had some diversity about what they believed. Uh, personalities, they were you know, diverse in the personality. Some were outgoing, some were reserved, some were extroverted, some were introverted. They had age diversity, they had gender diversity, stage of life diversity, but yet the mission was too important for them to be in discord. They had unity. They decided to be one together. They chose, listen, this is so good. They chose to find their greatest identity in Christ. Now, let me tell you why that's important because whenever you or I or anybody else attaches their sense of identity to something other than Jesus. It lays the groundwork for conflict. The moment that I decide that my greatest identity is I'm a conservative or that I'm a liberal or that I'm a Calvinist or that I'm an egalitarian or a complementarian or that I'm a young earthian or an old earthian or I'm pro this or anti that. The moment that I attach my greatest sense of identity to that, it lays the groundwork for conflict. But when my greatest sense of identity is connected to the fact that Jesus is my savior, God is my father, I am a son or daughter of God. The moment that that is my greatest sense of identity, you become my brother and you become my sister and we become family even though we're a bunch of nuts. Right? Now obviously, I'm talking about your family being crazy, not mine because I actually have family here this morning. But no, we are crazy too. But something happens inside of families. Something happens inside of biological families or relational families or faith families that when, when you understand we are in this together, we are family, we are brothers and we are sisters, that is where we find our unity. But when we say we're this or that, when we hang our identity on any other peg, we lay the groundwork for conflict. They rallied around what was most important. So what was most important? That Jesus had died for their sins. Jesus had been buried and Jesus had been raised from the dead and Jesus had been seen alive by his followers. That was the most important thing. They could disagree on almost anything else. And here in this church, we can disagree about just most anything, but I'm telling you, if we can all get together, if we can all get on the same page and sing the same note, that Jesus died for our sins, that Jesus was buried and Jesus was raised from the dead and he was seen by his followers, if we can all unite around that, there is no limit to what we can accomplish. There is no limit to how far we can go. You can see baptism differently. You can see spiritual gifts differently. You can see communion differently. You can see the providence of God differently. You can see creation differently. You can see Noah's Ark differently. You can see the Old Testament differently. But if we can get together on Jesus, 
If we can say with one voice that he died for the sins of the world, he was buried and he was raised from the dead. He is both Savior and he is Lord. If we can get behind that, we can ride that one all the way to the train station. And that's what they did. They rallied around what was most important and it caused them to sacrifice their preferences. And that's hard for church people to do. Well, I like it this way and liked it better when and just not a fan of. First Christians would say, take a big pill called get over it and swallow hard. That's what they would say. Sacrifice preferences, that's what unity requires. It causes us to loosely hold our traditions because unity matters more. The first Christians were willing to do an old thing in a new way. They kept the main thing the main thing because they knew that our unity makes our message more believable. Our lack of unity makes our message less believable. How many of us, how many of you decided once upon a time you were through with church? You were through with church people, you were through with organized church, and and just by the way, people talk about organized religion as though it's the worst thing ever. You know what's worse than organized religion? Disorganized religion. But I'm through with organized church. And you know why you got so upset with the church and you walked away from faith and you walked away from your family of faith? It's because they were fussing about the carpet. They were fussing about the lights. They were fussing about the Bible version. They were fussing about who had to get dunked and when they had to get dunked and who could dunk them and who couldn't dunk them and who was eligible and diseligible and who was on the row and who was out and who was gonna make the dumplings this year and who had the cherry cobbler. And, and, And it was everybody was just, everybody hated each other at homecoming time because nobody got to make the food that they wanted. So they all came and worshiped Jesus, just ticked off at each other. And it's like, you're through with that. It's like, if this is what the church is like, I don't need it. I don't want it. That's why most men prefer the bar than the local church. They're friendlier there. You can have a better conversation sitting at the bar with some guy who's a stranger than you can with somebody you see 51 Sundays out of the year. Didn't even put that one in my notes. Didn't, didn't even put it in my notes. But anyway. So we have an opportunity to be unified and it makes our message more believable. There's so many people in the parts of the country where we live that's over Christians fighting with each other, through, over it. Baptists fighting with Pentecostals and Methodists and all the jokes that we make about the dead in Christ will rise first and there goes the Presbyterians and, and, and you, know, all, you, know, you know, Baptists, you know, they know each other everywhere but the liquor store and you know, all the things that we say. And we just kind of pick at each other. But we don't think that our disunity, not just inside a local church, but inside the body of Christ denominationally, that our disunity makes our message less believable. So determination, open the door for unity. Second thing, determination, it, it kind of opened the door. It lit the fires for ambition because the mission was too important to settle for status quo. They couldn't afford to sit back and take it easy or, you know, let somebody else do it. They were determined from day one to get the word out. They were determined from day one to spread the good news that Jesus had died for the sins of the world, that everybody was invited into the kingdom of God. 
After Pentecost, after, pre, after Peter preached, uh, Peter and John, they, they went up to the temple one day and there was a man begging at the, at the gate called Beautiful. And he was asking for, you know, an offering. He was asking for alms. And, you know, Peter looked at him and said, well, silver and gold, we don't have, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And the guy, he rose up and he walked and it caused a big commotion. And Peter and John, they were arrested by the temple authorities. But then God set them free miraculously from prison and they went right back to it. They went right back to the temple and they were preaching. And the authorities came back to them and this is what they said to Peter and John. We gave you, we gave you strict orders told you. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said, but yet you have filled Jerusalem. You ambitious followers of Jesus. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. What teaching? It wasn't their teaching. It was Jesus' teaching that he told them to go and teach all the world. And they started in Jerusalem. They said, you won't stop. You won't back down. You're so determined, you're so ambitious, so ambitious, you're, you're, you're not gonna stop until everybody in the city hears what you keep saying about Jesus who died and was buried and was you know, raised from the dead. You, you, you just won't stop. So they, they brought in a hired gun. His name was Saul of Tarsus. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisee. He was a scholar, he was cultured and he, he came in to, to stomp out the church and he starts cleaning house from day one and he wanted to make a big splash and he wanted to you know, drop a big bomb from day one. So he consented that one of the first deacons, a guy by the name of Stephen would be stoned to death as a way of saying, hey, if y'all don't knock this off, what happened to him, it's gonna happen to you. It's gonna happen to your children. It's gonna happen to your family. It's gonna happen to the people that you love. And it says in the book of Acts, this is what Luke says, it says on that day, the day that Saul put Stephen to death, on that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. So what turned into a really bad moment turned into a really good opportunity. And ambitious people, that's what they see. When a really bad moment happens, they're able to see the opportunity to do good even in the midst of the bad. That's, that's how ambitious people work. They refuse to see an obstacle. They see an opportunity instead. So they were persecuted, but they said, hey, what a better time to just head on out to Judea and Samaria. Let's leave the heat of Jerusalem and let's just go ahead and do what Jesus told us to do because of their ambition. So you fast forward about, you know, 10 years ahead of time. Uh, a lot happened in those 10 years. Saul, who put to death Stephen, well, he got converted. And the persecutor of the church became one of the greatest preachers of the church. And about 10 or 15 years into the church, you know, into the story of the church in the book of Acts, 15 years in, the church has traveled just about 300 miles north and about 80 miles south. So it's expanding, but, but it's slowing down just a little bit. And, and Luke, he shows us the ambition of these believers. This is, this is what he records about the people who fled Jerusalem. He said, now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch spreading the word only among Jews, but something really big happened in Antioch because not only just Jewish people were coming to faith, 
but non-Jewish people, Gentiles started coming to faith. And that was gonna be a watershed moment that changed everything because you know what? Almost every single one of us is not all of us that are here right now. We are non-Jewish people. We are Gentiles. And for the first time, guess who got invited in to sit at the table? Gentiles. Those of us who have been regarded as dogs outside of the covenant that God had made with Israel. And all of a sudden, the good news was for us as well. And we got to come in. We were invited into the kingdom of God. We had our sins died for on the cross, just like the Jews did. We have a savior that was buried and raised from the dead, just like the Jewish people did. And all of a sudden, the church is full of Jewish people and Gentile people. And it changed everything. And it would be from Antioch that a new level of ambition would rise up. He says, now, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, and while they were wor worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul, who's now Paul, for the work to which I have called them. So they had fasted and prayed, and after they fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them, and they sent them off. They started praying, God, just like Jesus said, give us the world. Give us the world. We're not content 300 miles north here in Antioch, north of Jerusalem. We're not content with 80 miles south of Jerusalem. We're not content with that. We can't stay here. We can't stay here. God, give us the world. And so this is kind of what the world looked like. And here's Jerusalem and you go about 300 miles north and here's Antioch of Syria. And this is where they were. And this was where Saul and Barnabas was sent out. And then Paul and Barnabas, they went through all of these places, Pisidia and Iconium and Derbe and Lystra and Perga and all of these places. And they started telling people the good news. Jesus has died for your sin. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him doesn't have to perish, but can have everlasting life. Repent of your sin and place your faith in Christ. And so they started you know, planting churches and starting churches all around that whole area. It was incredible. Paul, he, he travels back around, goes back to Antioch, tells them, hey, this thing's moving. It's growing. And then he goes out again and he goes up here north to this place called Troas. And all of a sudden he has a vision. And there was a man over here in Macedonia in Paul's dream and said, hey, why don't you come over here and help us? And so they got on a boat and they crossed the water and he ended up in Macedonia and Philippi. And for the first time ever in history, the gospel moved west. The good news came west. They were moving in our direction and they didn't even know it. They were taking the good news to anybody who would listen. And so Paul, who was not content with that, he decided, he decided that he needed to get to Rome. And the only way that he could get to Rome was probably to go back to Jerusalem, get arrested. And that's what he did. And then he went from Jerusalem all the way to Rome because Rome was the center of the world. And he knew that if he could get the good news to Rome, he could get it to everywhere. That's ambition. That's determination. The mission is too important to be settled, to be comfortable, to accept the status quo. Their determination also opened the door for generosity. The mission was too important not to fund it. So not only are they going, and not only are they praying, and not only are they fasting, and not only are they doing all of those things, but they were giving, they were funding the mission of the church. This stuff wasn't happening for free. Everything that led to the expansion of the church had a price tag to it. 
it, it had a cost associated with it. And so Paul, in one of his letters, he kind of captures what the spirit of the early church was. And, and he tells another church about the giving of a church in Macedonia. And he said, let me tell you, let me, let me tell you. They gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. That was how much they believed in the purpose of the church. That's how much they believed in what they were doing, that it was going to work and that it was going to be worth it. They believed that God's purpose for their life was just not worth living. It was worth giving to. So they surrendered not only their life, but they surrendered their resources. They surrendered whatever it took to do what Christ had asked them to do. And they funded the expansion of the church and lives were changed. Generosity. Their determination opened the door for partnership. The mission was too important to go at it alone. They understood they were the body of Christ and some of them were forefingers and thumbs and elbows and biceps and shoulders and some of them were thighs and some of them were knees and some of them were chest and some of them were mouthpieces, but Jesus was the head, but they were, they were the body. And the only way that the body works at its best is when every part is doing its part. They saw everybody in the church as invaluable and as indispensable. Question, what part of your body are you willing to give up today? Of course not, you want it all and you want it all to be working and you want it to all be working together. And they saw themselves in the church, they all had a part. They were all a part with a part to play. And they understood that the mission would suffer. The mission would suffer if any one part decided not to do their part. They knew that it required every hand on deck. And if one part decided to abandon or neglect their part, the mission would suffer. And that we are at our best when we work together. And then this, this is the last one. Determination also opened the door for perseverance because the mission was too important to quit. When it was hard, they didn't quit. When it didn't turn out always like the way they thought it was gonna work out, they didn't quit. When they were persecuted, they didn't quit. When they didn't feel appreciated, I'm sure there were times they didn't feel appreciated. When they didn't feel appreciated, they didn't quit when they didn't feel like anything was happening or anything was getting better, they didn't quit. When things were happening that they didn't like, they refused to quit. When it was tough and difficult and painful, they didn't quit. I love how Paul, he just, he just, he says all that needs to be said about this. He said, I've been whipped times without number. Now, some of us feel that way, but that was when we were kids in parents' house, but he's not talking about that. He says, I've been whipped times without number, faced death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews, 40 lashes minus one. He says, I've been flogged multiple times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, danger from my fellow Jews, dangers from the Gentile, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I I have labored, I have toiled, and I have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and I have gone without food. I have been cold and naked. But you know what he didn't do? He didn't quit. And for all that happened to Paul, there were other Christians that the same thing was happening to as well. And they refused to quit. And even when Paul met with Ephesian elders 
in the latter part of the book of Acts, and he told them, I'm going to Jerusalem. They said, Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. You're going to get arrested. It's not going to work out well for you. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem. And like Jesus, he set his face like Flint, knowing that it would cost him, knowing that it wasn't going to be easy, knowing that it was going to be hard. But the first Christians and Christians throughout the generations, there's always been a group who decided the mission is too important to quit. So here it is. This is us. How should we respond? Well, we should just take the cue out of their playbook. We should run the play they ran. And we should find determination for the thing that Christ has called us to do. Determination, resolve. The thing that gets us going and keeps us going. We need to have such determination that we here at the Creek Church, we decide we're gonna be, we're gonna, we're gonna preserve our unity. We're gonna fight for our unity. We're gonna strive for unity, pray for unity, act in unity, love in unity. Listen, over the years here, we've had enough change in this church to split 20 churches. And some of you have been around for a while, you know what I'm talking about. We've, we do it different, it looks different, it sounds different. There's been about seven different iterations of our church over the last 15 years. We've moved building time and time again. We've moved church times time and time again. We canceled Sunday nights in the early days, canceled Wednesday night in the early days. We've changed everything that can be changed. But we were able to do it because we all agreed on what mattered most. That we are gonna sacrifice our preferences. We're gonna hold loosely our traditions so that we can accomplish the mission. The mission is too important to be in discord. We're gonna have determination that makes us ambitious. That's the reason we say, God, give us Kentucky. Yeah, we could have stayed content here on this 40 acres and this, this building, and we could have stayed content when we launched Somerset, and we could stay content when we launched Williamsburg, and we could stay content once Williamsburg gets online, and we could just, we could just at any given time, we could just decide this is enough. We've done all, hey, nobody could blame us if we kind of just let up now. I mean, how much do we have to do? How far do we have to go? Why do we have to keep? Because determination makes us ambitious. We want to reach as many people as we can. We want to change as much as we can. And we know that we can't be who God wants us to be and we can't do what God wants us to do by staying where we are. We need the determination that brings up to the surface our generosity. Listen, over the years in this church, our church has stepped up to the plate over and over again to love people and to reach people. The generosity of this church over 15 years and, and further than that, but just the 15 years has been staggering. And that generosity, the generosity of this church, it has changed lives. Listen, we have paid mortgage bill after mortgage bill after mortgage bill over the years. We have paid people's rent. We have paid their electric bill. We have paid their water bill. We have helped put shoes on the feet of people who couldn't put shoes on their feet. We have clothed the needy. We have fed the hungry. 
We have served prisoners. We've aided those who were sick. We've given away scholarships to college students. We've given away cars to single moms. We've helped fund adoptions. We've paid for women. We paid for single moms who were hiding, hiding from men who were abusing them. We have paid for their lodging. We have paid for them to get a place that nobody knows where they are so that their abuser will not find them and continue to do. We have helped them get out of danger. We've paid for cancer patients and their transportation to and from treatment. We've helped strangers get to their next bus stop. We've paid for hotel rooms. We've bought in food trucks. We've given away hot meals. We've given away hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds and hundreds of people a great Christmas that otherwise couldn't afford a great Christmas. We have helped girls have a great prom. We've given furniture to people who lost their home in a fire. We've bought bassinets. We have put kids in car seats. We have supported life centers so that young mothers can go and be counseled about life and the importance of it and not to give that baby up and not to put that baby up for an abortion. We have given money to causes that make a difference. We have helped pay for funerals over the years. We have prayed at the bedside of the sick and dying. We have bought cows for villages in Russia. We have drilled water wells in Africa and Haiti. We have put backpacks on the back of children. We've built porches for those who are in wheelchairs. We have supported small businesses. We have supported missionaries. We supported student trips who are going on mission trips. We've built schools and clinics and churches. We've paid for soccer camps in Argentina. We've prayed for food, paid for food in villages in Guatemala. We've bought Bibles, Feptopismos. We've bought Bibles for the people in Bosnia. We've wrote checks for Romania, Ukraine, Poland. We have bought Bibles for the Iraqis, for the Iranians. We have paid, helped pay for a satellite that broadcasts 24-7 the gospel all over the Middle East in the Arabian Peninsula. All the while, all the while, we've built kids' spaces. All the while, we've put paint on the walls. All the while, while we've kept the lights on and paved parking lots and launch campus after campus after campus and we've kept these buildings up and we've put in lights and we put in smoke and we made sure that the microphones had batteries in them. We made sure there was water to put in baptisms because thousands of people have walked through the water to say I've placed my faith in Jesus Christ because of the generosity, the generosity of his people. I've seen people walk and lay their gifts in chests. And you could hear the pennies and the dimes and the quarters. I've seen people sell their boats. I've seen people cash in a property or cash in this or cash in that so they could help fund the mission. Partnership, we need you, all of you. Everybody is a part and everybody has a part to play. And perseverance, let's not quit now. Let's not quit now. Never have we had a better opportunity. Never have we been on stronger footing. Never has the grace of God been so evident and thick in this moment for us to say, we're determined. We're determined to be the church and we're not gonna quit. Because when I read history, the waters couldn't drown us and the fires couldn't burn us out and the emperors couldn't stomp us out. We've withstood plagues and financial crisis and war. And here we still are at the church. What will we be willing to do? What will we be willing to give? And where will we be willing to go in order to not leave the world? 
the way we found it. Heavenly Father, how good you are. What a story, God, that you are writing for your people. Jesus, what started with you, it continues with us. What started with you, God, today we stand on the shoulders of men and women who came before us, who prayed big prayers, who gave generous gifts, who invited, who served, who played their part. And here we are, stewards of faith for our generation. God, help us not to miss this opportunity. If you're here today, the kingdom of God is open. There's a seat at the table for you and everyone is invited in. Whoever is thirsty can come drink of the water of life. Whoever is hungry can come take a bite of the bread of life and hunger no more. And if you're here and you've never placed your faith in Christ, I wanna give you an opportunity just to do what men and women throughout the generations have done to pray a simple prayer to say, Heavenly Father, today I believe that Jesus died for my sins. He was buried. He was raised. And today I receive your forgiveness, your gift of grace. I receive it right now as a son or a daughter of God. Our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. If you're here today and you prayed that prayer and you meant it, maybe for the first time, maybe you prayed that prayer once upon a time, but you're just not sure that it meant anything, but you prayed that prayer just now. Whether here in London or Somerset and Williamsburg, you just slip it up. Say, Trevor, I prayed that prayer just then and I meant it with all my heart. Anybody just slip up a hand and say, that's me. There's a hand. Anybody else? There's another. Anybody else? You just slip it up. There's another. There's another. Anybody else? You just slip it up. Say, that's me. I meant it with all of my heart. Anybody else? You just slip it up. Jesus continues to build his church people are getting swept up in the kingdom of God. For those of you who raised your hand, I hope you tell somebody today, tell one of our pastors, tell a volunteer, tell a family member, tell a friend. And for those of us that are here, let's put our hands together for those who took that step today.